0: If you can distract a child while in a doctor's office, the nurse will give the child a shot and the child will barely notice what even was going on because the child is distracted from the pain. But if the child focuses on what is happening, is totally aware of what is coming, then there's going to be a different story. Actually, it's going to be the worst thing on the planet for that child and you're going to know about it. So the distraction in that instance would be what we would call a good distraction. But we'll take this same idea of being distracted into our lives to avoid dealing with pain or to avoid taking responsibility. And what happens is that we become addicted to distractions because we think that as long as we stay busy, as long as we stay distracted and focused on something else, then I must be important or everything must be okay And all the while, the world around us could be in a lot of turmoil or a lot of pain or maybe our own lives or our own family, but the problem is is that because we were distracted, we didn't even notice. Because in our day and age, I think that we would all agree we are seriously distracted. And the reason we're seriously distracted is because we bought into this idea, we bought into this myth, this lie, this myth of more, that something that I don't yet have, something that's still out there, something that's yet to be attained, something that I need to pursue and chase after, that's the thing that I really need to be pursuing and chasing after. So we're going to deal with three myths today, and we're going to talk about those in the context of being seriously distracted and what we truly need to focus on. And so here's the first myth. What you don't have is what you need. That's what we think. That's the lie we buy into is that what we don't yet have, what I haven't yet acquired is really what I need. So I put my heart's focus and my heart's intent and all my motive, my effort, my energy in this belief that this thing that I haven't yet attained is truly what I need. That may be a spouse, that may be a certain financial status, maybe a certain position in the company, maybe living in a certain neighborhood, maybe uh, material things, you know, cars, and and maybe a certain vacation. I haven't had this experience yet. Um, I haven't yet done this thing. And we measure what we feel as success by what other people have done and what we feel like we should have already accomplished. I hear people saying, by this time in life, I should have already done these things. Because we have bought into this idea that there are certain benchmarks in life. We bought into this idea that there are certain checkpoints that by the time I get to this checkpoint in life, this age or this season of life, I should have already accomplished these things. And and actually, one of the biggest things we do is we think, man, I can't believe I'm still dealing with this. I thought by this time in my life, I would have been over it. I don't know if that's anybody in here or anybody watching online. But I know that I can certainly attest to the fact that I have very much felt that. And that comes from comparing yourselves to other people. That comes from looking at what someone else has done, what someone else has accomplished, what someone else has. And you look at them and you say, man, I am a failure. I am really missing the mark. Or you allow pride to sneak in and you go, man, I'm doing so much better than my peers or my parents or those who work around me or those who I have close relationship with. And you assess your level of success based on what you've done and what they haven't done so you feel better about yourself. And it's this comparison trap. And we're always pursuing and buying into this idea, this lie, that what we don't yet have is what we truly need. Go over to the book of Genesis. Let's look at the very beginning here because this is not a new tactic that the enemy has used. Over in Genesis chapter 3, over here in the very beginning, so here you've got God He's created the world. He's created everything in it, and now He's made man and woman, and He's put them into this beautiful garden. He's put them into this beautiful scenario, this paradise, this place of perfection, this place where they're right there with Him. They're in the very presence of God. They're walking and talking with God, having open communion and fellowship with their Creator. And God says that all you guys have to do is just eat from any tree you want. And There's so much i provided for you, so much beauty around you i want you to be able to just enjoy it and 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 i'm taking care of everything you need you're not going to have to work for it i'm just going to provide it and you are just to tend it to take care of it and just enjoy it but there's one thing i am going to tell you not to do i'm going to tell you to not partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because the day that you eat of it don't even touch it the day you eat of it said you're going to surely die So, don't go pursue that, but everything else is freely yours to pursue. So, in Genesis chapter 3, we see this encounter here where the serpent came and spoke to Eve, the woman. And let's look at what happened Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is literally the oldest trick in the book, right? (laughs) Is that what you don't yet have is what you need. You've been given so much We have been so blessed, so taken care of, and God has provided so much. But when we buy into the myth of more, what we're really doing at the core is we're questioning the goodness of God. That's really the core of what's going on, because what the enemy was saying was that is God really good? Did he really give you what you truly need, or could there be something God's holding out? Could there be something that God's withholding from you, thus making him not as good as you may think? And he can get our eyes off of everything around us that he has done, and our eyes get fixated on that one thing that we don't yet have. It happens to us all the time. It happens in all sorts of areas of our lives that we miss out on being thankful. That's why thankfulness is such a key component in the life of a Christ follower, that if we will posture our hearts to be grateful and thankful, if we will be thankful people, if we will remember the goodness of our God, that's why when we're anchored in the message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that he would come and save a sinner like you and me, if we're anchored in that, it should keep my heart positioned. To be thankful and grateful to the point to where if I have Jesus and nothing else, I have everything I need. And I know that's a nice saying and we could maybe sell a t-shirt with that on it. Put it on a bumper sticker, you know, maybe put it on your car. But do we really believe that? Or is it just something that we say like we pulled it out of a fortune cookie? That Jesus is all I need. We sing it. Jesus is all I need. Christ is enough for me. We say these statements, but do we live like Christ truly is everything we need? Or is there something else? Is there something else that maybe would... It's Jesus plus something else that would truly bring contentment. It's Jesus plus... The things that I want and so therefore we do what Romans chapter 1 says where Paul said that they created God in their image by taking the image of an incorruptible God and making him like the image of corruptible man where we're wanting to worship our own idea of God and we're only interested in God for what he can get us and as long as God can get us the things that we think we need in order to be content and happy and enjoy this experience here in life then we'll follow God but we all have a line We all have a line, God, I'll go with you this far, but then once we get to this place, are you going to do this for me or not? And we hold out because we think God is, is withholding something good from us when, folks, Christ truly is enough. It's not what you don't have is what you need. It's learning contentment in Christ because the enemy is still using the same trick for you and I that he used that day in the garden with Adam and Eve. The same trick. It's the same tactic. You think we would have wisened up by now. You know, if you go and you touch the stove and you get burned, ow, and then you go back and you touch it again and you get burned, ow, you go back, you touch it again, ow, you get burned over and over again. And you would think as the centuries have passed, we would have stopped going to the stove and touching it. But we keep returning to the same thing over and over again, hoping for a different result. And we're missing the mark because we're focused on us and not focused on the goodness of God and we buy into the lie that what we don't yet have is what we need. They messed up, just like you and I mess up, and we buy into the myth that there's something else. Ecclesiastes 4 and 6, the writer of Ecclesiastes says this, Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Better one handful and be at peace, be content, be happy, be be, be at this place of rest rather than having two handfuls. Well, I've got more. More must be better. That's what we think. That's what we buy into. More is better. But man, if it requires toil and chasing after the wind, I can say, look what I have. But what did it truly cost me? What did I miss out on? because I have bought into the lie that more is better. The author in the book of Ecclesiastes uses this word hevel over and over again, which we translate as meaningless. You'll read Ecclesiastes, and man, I mean, if you want to read something just because you're like, I want to be sad today, turn on some country music and read Ecclesiastes, (laughs) and you'll, you'll get there. That's the fast track to sadness. Um, because he just goes, it's meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And he's using this, this Hebrew word, hevel, over and over again. Everything is hevel. Everything is hevel. But it doesn't really just mean meaningless in the sense of maybe the way you and I would interpret that word, because we may think that that word means worthless, because we think meaningless and worthless are pretty much on, the, on par with one another. And that's not necessarily what he's trying to communicate. He's not saying everything is worthless. Because the word hevel is the same Hebrew word for smoke or vapor. And it is, uh, it's something beautiful that changes shape just as quickly as it appears. And, and, it, and it's moving. And, 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 and as soon as you can appreciate the beauty of the smoke, it, it, it just seems to disappear. And if you try to reach out and grasp it, it's just going to slip through your fingers. And so as the writer is writing this word, Havel, that's what he's trying to communicate, that not that it's worthless, not that there's no point to it, but that, man, you you, you can't grasp it, this life, this life, it's it's beautiful, it's to be admired, it's to be cherished, yes, but but just as quickly as it appears, man, it just seems to just be gone. Because if we live for what we don't yet have, we're trying to grab smoke. We're trying to grab smoke. If we're living for if that's our aim, if that's our goal is to pursue and attain that thing we don't yet have, we're pursuing smoke. Life is meaningless. We're not really grabbing onto something we can actually hold onto. We're not appreciating the beauty. We're not, we're not enjoying the moment. Instead, we're trying to grab onto something that we don't yet have, and we get distracted by what we don't yet have because we think that it truly is what we need. We think it's the thing. We buy into the lie that the enemy has been throwing out there for years and years and years, and it's like trying to grab smoke. And that's the first myth that I want us to deal with is is what we don't have is what we need when truly contentment is found in Christ alone. And the only thing that maybe perhaps you don't have that you don't need is if you are a person who has not put their faith and hope in Jesus Christ. If you have not put your hope in Christ, yeah, you don't have what you need. You need Jesus. You need to put your hope in him. And and maybe if if you've moved on to something else after putting your faith in Christ, thinking, oh, there's something more. It must be Jesus to to get me this or Jesus to put me on a pathway to attain these things that are going to satisfy. No. Find contentment and joy in Christ alone. Because guess what, folks? He has changed our eternal path. He has given us the opportunity to be called sons and daughters of God by His sacrifice, not because of any good that's in me or any good I've done, but rather in spite of who I am. He has chosen me and loved me right in the middle of all my junk. Thank you, Jesus. When we're worshiping, when we gather as a church family and we sing songs and we have the opportunity to open the word, when we have an opportunity to sing together, when we have an opportunity to pray, we can talk to God and He actually cares about what I'm saying. I don't know how well some of you may know me, some of you may be more than others, but I like to talk. I use a few words. And so when I, that somebody laughed really loud. I don't know who you were, but I'm going to pray for you. <clears throat> but, uh, but, but, but I can use so many words, people don't even care what I'm saying. And my wife is like, yeah, I'm just hearing like white noise in the background, you know. And, and I get that. But you know what? God doesn't treat me that way. God cares about everything. He cares about the minute details of your life. And you have access to him. Isn't that crazy? Does that just not mess you up? If you stop? I mean, come on, stop and think about it. Have you ever been in a room and you're trying to pick out a voice, you're trying to hear what maybe one or two people are saying? I can only pick up on maybe one or two people's conversation and, and halfway pay attention and, and gather what they're, they're may be saying when I'm in a group of people, when I'm in a crowd? I can't pay attention to everybody's conversation. But yet God? has the ability to listen simultaneously to thousands and thousands and and, and even millions of people worshiping, singing to him, praying to him, interacting and engaging him, and not just listen, but to be able to differentiate the voices and care about the individual right where they're at. That blows my mind because I can't even hear what my kids are saying half the time. My, My girls do this. It's funny. They have their own language. I have twin girls, and they're 12. They have their own language, and it's like this mumbling thing, and I have no idea what they're saying. But they get really excited about something, and they start talking to me about it, try to get me excited, and they lose me when they start getting excited, but they still understand each other. Like, they'll tell me about this movie, Dad, we went and watched Frozen 2, and it was great. And then the other one kicks in, yeah, Dad. And they're laughing, and I'm like, what did you say? I heard we went and watched a movie, <laughs> and then the rest of it was just mumbling, and they were giddy and excited, And but God knows, and God cares. Does that not just blow you away? Not only does He hear, but He cares, and so it's not something else that I don't yet have, but it's to value what I do have. Amen, somebody? The second myth I want to talk about today that we buy into is this myth that success is having more than someone else we we buy into this one pretty easy because when we look to define success oh that person is successful what we will often kind of quantify that as is that we will say that the reason that that person is successful is because they have more than me or they have more than someone else and it's a positional thing of looking down upon other people. And it often means I have more, uh, m- more money in my bank account, or I have a bigger home, more square footage, or I have a more important position with more responsibility in the company, or whatever the case may be. And they may call all of those things success. And we buy into this lie that that's the definition of success, is having more than someone else. As long as I'm doing better than the person sitting next to me Or if I'm doing better than someone that I'm internally competing with, whether that be a family member, whether that be a parent, whether that be a friend, whether that be someone that uh, you have grown envious of and you're competing with them, when you feel like you've outperformed them, well, now you're successful and you can feel content and at rest. And that's not true because that lie just gets you to buy into another lie, doesn't it? Go over to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Let's, let's look at that. You ready to cue up the country music? No, I'm kidding. Kind of. I mean, if you guys want. I mean, Ecclesiastes 5. This is what the writer of Ecclesiastes says. Some of you really like country music. I get that. It's cool. Not hating on your music or anything. It's not all sad. Some of it's fun. Uh, <laughs> that's not what we're talking about this morning, though. <laughs> Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 10, check this out. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, right after Proverbs. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 10 says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his own eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, "'Whether he eats little or much, "'but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. "'There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. "'Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, "'and those riches were lost in a bad venture. "'And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. "'And he came from his his mother's womb, "'and he shall go again naked as he came, "'and shall take nothing for his toil "'that he may carry away in his hand.' This also is a grievous evil, just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting, is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot, to enjoy his toil. This is a gift of God, for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy of his heart. You see, we get distracted from what matters when we get our eyes on what someone else has and we think it's going to satisfy us. We think that if we can hit these benchmarks, if we can do these things, that means I'm winning at life. And we all want to win. We're we're, we're taught even as as Western thinkers, as Americans, that winning means having, having stronger, better, bigger, faster, more than the person next to me. And because we have the biggest this, the, the best this, or the strongest this, you know, we, 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 we think that's the goal. I mean, we want to win the gold medal in all the Olympic Games, and we think we earned it and we deserved it, and we're, we're, we're just guaranteed it because we're bigger and better and stronger and, and, and faster. And we think because of that, we're successful. We should be admired. We should be looked at. We should be loved because we have something more than someone else has. And there is a temporary joy that comes from having more than someone else and attributing that to success. But man, it, it quickly disappears like a vapor. That joy of, yeah, I won. I, I won the race. Now I want to go win another one. I won this thing, I, I, I outdid this, I outdid that, this situation or this person, or, or, and now I want to go do it again because still now I feel, I, I feel empty now. I, 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 it didn't last, it didn't sustain me. That temporary joy that it brings of having more than someone else, all it is is a distraction, it just distracts us from what really matters there's a great Jewish parable um, that I-, I love to share with people um, that uh, that rabbis tell. It's an old Jewish parable of two shop owners. There are two shop owners in the same town that both of them sell pretty much the same types of goods, and they are located across the way from each other in the marketplace. They pretty much sell the same goods. They have the same location, pretty much, except they're across from one another in the marketplace. And their prices are very similar. And they, uh, they, the, the shop owners, um, as they're doing business, one of them became extremely successful and did very well for himself and sold a lot of goods and was the place to be. And the other shop didn't do as well. And the other shop owner became envious, the one who wasn't doing as well, and he was very confused because he thought, I'm selling the same kind of goods, my prices are competitive, um, we're, we're in the same vicinity, and he went over to the other shop owner and he said, I don't understand, how come people are always going to your shop, why are you outperforming me, why do you do so well here, because all I'm seeing is that you were so much similar, and you're just outperforming me in every way, and the shop owner who was uh, outperforming and said, well, it's really simple. There's a, the reason that I'm doing more business than you are. I only have my eyes on one shop. As I begin to think about that, this guy's just focused on what he's carved out to do. He's not, he doesn't have his eyes pulled over somewhere else, looking at what someone else has, looking at what someone else is doing. Just always focused on why am I not like this guy? Why am I not living like this guy? Why do I have what these people have, especially when you begin to look at people in your same age bracket? You'll go, well, how come these people are so much further along? I mean, I'm the same age. Uh, how come they've gotten these responsibilities? They've gotten these, these, these opportunities. I, I mean, I, I've, I've been married just as long as this person. Why am I struggling so much in this area? And we begin to compare ourselves. Therefore, we feel like we're failing because we've got our eyes on other people instead of on the things God has called us to be responsible for. We're not focused on the things that God has called us to be focused on, because there's going to be people who always achieve different levels of financial success. There are going to be different people who achieve different levels um, of, of, of status within a company or whatever the case may be. The goal is not for all of us to have the same thing. Hello, somebody. Uh, It's it's not for me to have just as much as a person or it's funny because with the advent of, of, of social media YouTube and 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 all those things like that everybody feels like they're entitled to their 15 seconds of fame. Everybody wants to be popular. Everybody wants to make a name for themselves and and people are hoping my video goes viral. That's the goal now is to have so many eyes watching your video to be popular. Because people think if I just work hard enough, I can be as popular as someone else. They got their start on YouTube, so I'm going to get my start on YouTube. Everyone's chasing what someone else has instead of doing the things God has called and created and gifted them to because we think if I could just have what that person has, maybe I could go the pathway they went. You, you remember? Anybody remember when like eBay like blew up? Like eBay was like the thing. It was like Amazon, what? Like That's not even a thing. It's like eBay and everyone was like had an ebay store and if you had an ebay account i mean like you could run a business people were making tons of money and i remember all of these strategies all these guides all these how to become rich and famous on ebay and now who's trying to become rich on ebay right now anybody in the room you need to stop if you are trying <laughs> to become rich <clears throat> on ebay the the books it, they're irrelevant and i doubt that those books and those formulas attributed to the same success the person who wrote it did because we just chase after this stuff we think this is the pathway this is how i'm going to get the stuff this is how i'm going to win this is how i'm going to get the things that 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 i that i need to have and and so we're always looking at another pathway and we're always looking for the, the, the the quick easy path when maybe we understand something here as we look at ecclesiastes that the richest people in this life are not those who have the most, but rather those who need the least. That the richest of us are those of us who have found contentment, because I don't need these things to feel special, to feel uh, content, that I can find my contentment in Christ alone. It always blows me away, and, 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 and I don't understand this. I, I only have an idea of understanding it, because I can't, as an American, say that I understand it. I have been on foreign mission trips to different countries all over the world in my 20 years of pastoral ministry. And I have been with children who aren't living the lifestyle that my children are afforded to live in America. And I see joy and I see contentment and I see people loving God in a way that challenges me to my very core. So it's not the stuff that makes me love God more. It's not the bank account that makes me love God more. It's not because God got me what I thought I needed to have to be successful that made me love God more. It's just loving God because He's enough. It's finding contentment, not finding more than someone else. That's the myth that we buy into is that that's the pathway to happiness is having more than someone else. And, folks, it's not. It's actually needing the least the last myth that i want to deal with today is this one and this is a big one i'm getting in everybody's cookie jar including mine today i'm just meddling today this is where i'm meddling myth number three the busier i am the more important i am that's what it sounds like up here because everybody's going so and so needs to be here no you're here stop thinking about who's not here You're here. It's for you. All right. The busier I am, the more important I am. See, in our society, we criticize the stay at home mom because we think, how dare she not be busy? Oh, hello, somebody. (laughs) I told you I was meddling. We're getting jobs on top of jobs and making commitments on top of commitments. And we squeeze everything that we can into every moment of our calendar. And we criticize those who aren't doing as much. I remember there was this skit on, on this show in the 90s, this, this sketch comedy show, In Living Color. And there was this one sketch that was called Hey Mon. And it was about this West Indies Jamaican family. They were called the Headleys. And the dad, he would always have a ridiculous amount of jobs and he was proud of how much he worked. And he would say this. He would say, I'm the airplane pilot, the cabin boy, the ticket agent, the head steward, the navigator, the towel boy, the in-flight chiropractor, and me uncle. On- pilot. And my lazy, no good son, Byron, only got three jobs. You know, it's like he was so proud of how much he worked and all the different jobs because he thought, much like most of us think, the busier I am, the more important I must be. Man, I remember when I first got here eight years ago as a pastor of Word of Grace, I came from a small town, a really small church, I mean, I mean, even, even smaller than Sheboygan Falls, I mean, just really small town, small church out in the middle of nowhere in the backwoods of Arkansas, and then I came here, and I thought, oh, wow, this is a larger church, um, I have staff now, man, I'm super busy, my calendar's full, I have arrived, I'm important because I'm busy, and that's a lie. You're not important because you're busy. You're just distracted because you're busy. And you've bought into the lie, you've bought into the myth that because you're busy, that means you're important. People need me. Well, I learned real quick that when I went on my month long sabbatical, word of grace functioned just fine. <laughs> oh, wow. So it's not about me then. Oh, okay. We think that we're just the, 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 the epicenter. We think that we're the thing that everything else revolves around. We think that we're incredibly important. And so, therefore, I must be busy to, to validate my, my position. I must be busy to validate my importance to the rest of society. And we criticize people for not being busy. We criticize people. When, when, they, when, when they've actually made space, we feel like we have to excuse like our, our rest you know, like I, I take Fridays off, right? And sometimes when I'm off on Fridays I, and people say, oh, well, oh, so you're, you're not, you're not working today? Oh, no, well, you know, I've got a lot of stuff to do. Um, I mean, I'm busy. I got a list and I got stuff to do. You know, sometimes I have to work. I have to come up here. And, you know, I feel automatically like I have to jump in and justify taking a day off. What's wrong with us? What's wrong with you, Derek? <laughs> you know, it's just like we, we feel this need to impress people with how hard we work, with how long we work, as if that means I'm important, I'm valued, and I find my validation through, the, through, through, through working long, hard hours, and, and you know, I, I forgot what my children look like, but, man, I'm important. <laughs> I think that we're getting caught up in a myth. I think we're getting seriously distracted, and we commit ourselves to things that we think we need to have to make us happy and because we've made all these big commitments, well, now we've got to pay the price for these commitments. And we run up and down the road. We've got little Johnny and Susie's, their schedule slam full, and we teach this to our kids. We teach them that they have to have every night of the week, every moment, um, just completely slam full, busy, and they don't know how to rest. They just pass out at night, and they live stressed out lives because they get a a ton of homework dumped on them, and then they've got to go to soccer and basketball and football and cheer and dance and and, 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 and sculpting class. I don't know what you do. (laughs) But it just seems like if there is something, oh, I need to develop that skill. I'll sign me up, you know? I I need to cram every day full of stuff. And we just think that that means I'm important. That means means I'm doing well in life because I'm so busy. And it's a myth. It is a myth. It does not mean that you are more important. We must remove distractions by finding worth and contentment in pursuing Christ. That's where our, our identity should come from, is from Christ alone, not from being busy, not from having more than someone else, not from something yet that I don't, uh, haven't acquired that I feel that I need. That's not where my worth comes from. That's not where my value comes from. It comes from Christ alone. You see, allowing him to define us will help us to find our identity. Let's go over to First Timothy. First Timothy chapter six. Let's look at this before we wrap up our time here today. First Timothy six. And verse six, Paul writes to the young minister, Timothy. And he says this to him in first timothy chapter 6 verse 6 but godliness with contentment is great gain for we brought nothing into the world Hmm. and he says here we cannot take anything out of the world but if we have food and clothing with these we'll be content (laughs) how many of you are content with food and clothing don't raise your hand because it's not true (laughs) food and clothing does not make us go i have everything i need. we don't go woohoo. that's like getting socks and underwear for christmas, right? <laughs> like nobody gets excited about that except maybe dad. <laughs> we think that it's something we don't yet have, so let me ask this question for you to think about this week. what are the distractions in your life? Which one of these myths have you been buying into? Maybe all three. Which one have you been buying into maybe a little too much? And God's calling you to a place of repentance. Maybe things you don't have. Maybe keeping your eye on someone else's shop. And and, and you're not focused on your own family because you're wondering, why is your family not doing what another person's family is doing? Instead of focusing on what God has made you responsible for. Um, maybe you're chasing something someone else has, maybe busyness has overtaken your life and you have to make a serious reset. you got to repent. Part of repentance isn't just saying God, I'm sorry. Godly sorrow works repentance. That means that I am genuinely grieving over the fact that I have been seriously distracted and I've been finding my worth and my value in other people and other things. And God is calling me back to this place to where I not only have this godly sorrow over my sin and I'm being broken over my sin But where I'm course correct and some of you may have to make some big course corrections You may have to get rid of some stuff. You may have to say no to some things you may have to clear out your schedule You may have to look at the priorities and have some deep conversations with your spouse with your friends with loved ones with your children with your grandchildren, maybe you have to repent to them, tell them, guys, we, we've been prioritizing the wrong stuff, we've been chasing after the myth of more, and it's time for us to reset. Where do I start? You start with seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, Matthew 6, and everything else will begin to fall into place. In other words, prioritize eternal things, prioritize the things of God over everything else. Prioritize the things that truly do matter most. Look at scripture. See what God values. See what matters. Over and over again, Jesus said, the kingdom, the kingdom. Have you found worth and value in eternal things? When you have, everything else becomes secondary, and it just seems not to be as important. Yeah, it'd be nice if we had this or if we did this, but really our priority is here with the way I steward my time, with the way I steward my resources, with the way I steward my relationships, with the things I'm willing to say yes to and no to. So it's time for evaluation, church, because our lack of contentment keeps us distracted from saying yes to greater things, greater things that impact eternity. So in light of eternity, this is my question for us here today. In light of eternity, in light of eternity, What distractions need to be removed in your life? What things do you need to say no to? What things do you need to repent of? Not just stop doing, but actually say no to. And how do you put yourself in a position to say yes to that greater thing that God's been leading and guiding you to? Maybe it's focusing on spending more time with him and his word. Maybe it's focusing on your marriage. Maybe it's focusing on your relationship with your children instead of being busy, instead of being distracted by things or just giving them things to pacify your absence. A substitute for your absence. Maybe it's time to say yes to greater things. Say no to yourself. Maybe you've been saying yes to yourself a whole lot. You've been saying yes to your way, what you want, and God's like, it's time for you to say no to you, to put your emotions, your feelings, your thoughts, your pride, your wants, your desires, your schedule, to put it to the side because I'm calling you to say yes to something greater. What is that greater thing? Church, I want to encourage you to say yes to that and maybe spend some time in conversation, and repentance. Talk to the Lord. Why don't we just take the next couple minutes. Let's just talk to the Lord. Heavenly Father. I don't want to just casually talk to you, Lord. You're holy. Holy is your name. Lord, I want your kingdom come, your will to be done in every life, including my own, in every family, including my own, in every marriage, in every relationship, including my own. I want your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, Lord the things we need to sustain us, where we trust that you're our source of those things. You're the source of our daily bread. You are our daily bread. You are what we need to be sustained, to be content, to be enough. So, Lord, we pray you give us that today and pray that you would forgive us, Lord, of our debts, of our trespasses, the things we've intentionally done where we trespassed, where we crossed a line. And help us to also forgive those who have done these things to us because you are faithful to forgive us of our sin and of our trespasses, of our wrongdoing. So help us to forgive others who have done wrong against us. Lord, we know that you're not going to lead us into temptation, but God, we pray you would deliver us from evil, the evil of the lies, the evil of the myths, the the serpent that's still, Lord, whispering in the ears of the saints to get them to believe that you are not good. Or that you're holding out something from us when you have given us everything we need in Christ. Help us to have fresh eyes to look around and see the goodness of God because, Lord, yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. Yours is the glory. We thank you, God. It's all for you. In Jesus' name.
1: Amen. Merry Christmas, right? No, that's good stuff. Good, good challenge for us. I want to encourage you with one thing before you go. Many of us are in moments of inspiration, and hopefully more than inspiration, just a challenge from the Holy Spirit of God. Uh, so I'd encourage you, if that's you today, and you, you've got that thought of, man, I need, to, I need to do this, or I need to tell my spouse this, or I need to make this change. I challenge you before you even get up to leave this room, tell your spouse or if you're not married, someone that you're close to, if that's sending a text to someone to say, hey, let's get serious about this. Let's hold each other accountable. Let's help each other with this um, so that it's not just a a service where we got to go out and go, ah, that was a good service. Because there's no fruit from going, hey, that was a good service. The fruit comes from being obedient to what the Lord's putting in your heart. So let's stand up. As we get ready to go today and have some conversations if you need to, no rush to get out, take your time. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. God bless you guys. We will see you next time.